Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with Judith Rumeni. She is the founder and director of the Jewish Institute of Petiliano, and she is the founder and editor of the Sephardic Horizons online journal. She is a retired professor in the Spanish department and in Jewish studies at the University of Maryland where she taught Sephardic literature and Spanish language. We will today be discussing her new book, Jews in Southern Tuscany During the Holocaust, Ambiguous Refuge, published in Lanham, Maryland, by Roman and Littlefield, 2021. Judith, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. To begin, can can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Oh, I grew up in England um, in a town called Northampton, which is right in the middle of the country. And um, I had a sort of normal English upbringing. And um, I attended Nottingham University and then London University, where I uh, specialized in um, Spanish studies, actually, both places, Spanish and French. And, um, well, uh, formative uh, experiences I uh, moved to the United States because I was interested in pursuing a doctorate. I met a wonderful man who was a Libyan Jew who introduced me to the Italian language and uh, Italy, Uh, but he had grown up in Libya and uh, I became very interested in through that, Mediterranean studies, Sephardic studies, as an extension of my original training in Spanish. Thank you for sharing that. Can you summarize your book for us? Oh, um, well, my book um, deals with a small corner of uh, Tuscany, the province of Grosseto. Uh, It is a micro-study of uh, within Holocaust studies, I deal with um, the Holocaust years and um, the aftermath. And uh, my book, uh, my book develops my interest in a town called Pitigliano, which is in this province. I was first introduced by some friends to the interesting history of Jews in this town, where most of the Jews were protected by local farmers from the fascists and the Nazis who were trying to arrest them. 
I was fascinated by this history. I wanted to celebrate it. And I founded an institute to tell the world about the, the history of Pitigliano and its good relations between Christians and Jews. Le, uh, when I began research for the book, I discovered there was another side to the history of Jews in the province of Grosseto. On the other side of the province, uh, there was a um, an internment camp, a Campo di Concentramento, it was called in Italian, very close to the term concentration camp. But it wasn't exactly what we might imagine as a concentration camp. It wasn't a death camp. It was simply an internment camp uh, from which later, uh, at the end of the war, many of the Jewish inmates were deported by fascists uh, working together with the Nazis um, via a larger camp in northern Italy. And um, unfortunately, those who were deported ended up in Auschwitz. So we have two contrasting aspects. We have, we have the uh, very courageous, uh, simple peasant farmers who hid the local Jews around Pitigliano. And on the other side of the province, we have uh, 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 the governor of the province, a fascist governor, and a bishop who sympathized somewhat with fascist goals, who lent his villa, uh, not exactly lent, he rented it to the fascists to put their internment camp there. So pretty much two extremes of Italian attitudes towards Jews and Italian attitudes at the time uh, towards collaboration in the Nazi project. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? I, I would like them to understand a little more about how things were in Italy in those years, how difficult it was for everybody, and how courageous some were to defy the, the fascists and the Nazis, but primarily fascists, and uh, give support to local Jews and foreign Jews who were also there and help to save their lives. Um, that's one side of it. The other side is uh, since the war, um, Italy has benefited from a, um, a sort of a free pass with regard to its responsibility for the Holocaust. Um, Mussolini and the fascist party that ruled Italy um, supported the goals of the Nazis and also uh, willingly allowed their own Jews to be deported and, and exterminated. We have to come to terms with that, and we have to somewhat uh, uh, erode the, the um, image of Italians were all good. Italiani brava gente. All Italians were good. All Italians were helping the resistance and uh, fighting against uh, the Nazi project. So those are the things that my book is trying to do. I hope I can bring a little more 
complexity to people's view of the war in that area. What inspired you to write this book? Um, well, as I said, I was very much entranced by the story of how the local people saved the Jews of Pitigliano. Originally, I was hoping to make a film, but I'm not a filmmaker. Uh, making a film requires funding and resources and skills of many people uh, that I wasn't able to mobilize myself. So in the end, after doing some interviews that I hoped might have been part of a film, I decided that the best thing was to do something that I know how to do, which is write a book. So having done interviews, having talked to people, um, I went to do some research in various archives, and uh, that's what my book is based on, the interviews and the, and the archival evidence uh, that I hope will somehow um, help to erode the myths that have surrounded this area and what happened during the war. What is your book's contribution to Holocaust studies and to the history of the Holocaust? Um, so, as I said, my book falls into the genre of micro-studies. I examine what happened and the personalities involved in one rather small province in southern Tuscany and a rather small number of Jews. I personally think it's somewhat mind-numbing to discuss millions of victims, uh, although, of course, it's uh, unfortunately was like that. But um, it's hard to appreciate the suffering they went through. If you look at the micro-history and you focus on the experiences and the fates of um, a little over 100 Jews, it's possible to empathize better with them. Very little happened in the province of Grosseto, and yet everything happened there. What that means, I hope, will emerge later in our discussion. The whole range of behaviors in particular. I challenge the widely accepted post-war view that Italians were all good people, the myths of the Italiani brava gente. Other scholars have done this too, but on... Uh, a more popular level, it is still quite prevalent. And Italians, unlike Germans, have not yet properly come to terms with their record during the war. Can you describe the Rocca Tederighi concentration camp? Where was yeah. it located? Who was held there? What kinds of abuses and atrocities took place there? Okay. First of all, we don't have evidence of atrocities there may have been some abuses. Um, in fact, some of the Jews said it was actually a pleasant experience for them to be there. There could have been some beatings of those who tried to escape but didn't make it, or of those from whom the fascist police wanted to extract information. Um, there is a book called Ordinary Violence During Fascism. Beating was a frequent part of the so-called ordinary violence. 
The camp was one of many that the fascists set up, originally for dissidents, later for Jews and enemy combatants. Um, there is a book by Carlos Spartaco Capogreco. It's called Mussolini's Camps, telling how prevalent imprisonment or internment was as a tool of fascism, supposedly for re-education. This particular camp had the uniqueness of being set up with the church's active collaboration. It was in the hills north of Grosseto, about an hour north, driving. It sat on top of a hill with magnificent views of a Tuscan, beautiful, hilly landscape. And it had an impressive stone staircase leading up to it on one side. And on the other side, there was a steep road and finished off by a level driveway for obviously for deliveries. The building itself was Spartan, not at all attractive. It was the bishop's summer residence. The bishop went there this time in the winter of 1943 with a group of priests and nuns and his sister uh, because uh, Italy was already uh, in the process of being uh, we reconquered from the Nazis. The Nazis only held northern Italy and Rome, the, the top half. Um, Grosseto, the town where the bishop lived, was a target and had had quite a lot of damage because it had a large airfield that was being used by the Germans. Um, so uh, this small camp in the bishop's summer residence um, had, um, besides the bishop and his retinue, it had about 20 fascist guards, militi, armed with machine guns and grenades, patrolling a newly set up barbed wire fence, uh, and they were patrolling day and night to pretend to prevent escapes. There were also three security officers, perhaps for interrogations. There were five nuns who did the cooking and three male orderlies for cleaning. The prisoners, uh, who numbered between 80 and 100, we're not totally sure of the names and numbers, uh, were in a different building next door, which was linked by a glassed-in corridor. Uh, the, the heating was probably non-existent over the extremely cold winter of 1943 to 44. And the food for the prisoners, which they had to pay for, was monotonous and inadequate. The prisoners were mostly Jews. There were the foreign Jews, mainly German and Polish Jews who had been trapped in Italy and were previously under house arrest. There were local Jews and Jews from outside of the province. There were also some resistance fighters. They were either Algerian or French, who perhaps had been mistaken for Jews. Uh, they had been captured somewhere, we don't know where, and sent on to Rakate de Rigi. Of course, among the prisoners, everyone's goal was to get out of there. 
some local Jews who might have had some connections with the bishop were more privileged, and they were released early after a month or two on the basis of falsified chest X-rays. Two others were released in order to drive a truck from uh, northern Tuscany. Uh, they went to pick up tobacco and salt, and they brought it to the camp and to the towns in the province. And then there were a few others who escaped over the barbed wire from time to time. And uh, so I'll, I'm sure more will come up about the campus. We continue our discussion. What role did Bishop Paolo Galeazzi play in the Holocaust in Italy and in Tuscany? So Bishop Paolo Galeazzi was, I would say, not your typical image of a bishop. Um, he was a rather militant cleric. He had been, uh, he was the bishop of the Diocese of Grosseto, which covered about half of the province of Grosseto. Um, during the First World War, he had been a military priest with the Italian army, with the prestigious Bersalieri reg Regiment of Sharpshooters, and he seemed to have a taste for military life. Although priests were not supposed to have political allegiance, clearly he was sympathetic to the fascist party. Perhaps he was even excited by its goals, its goals being to create a totalitarian society with a race-based hierarchy. Uh, obviously, uh, excluding Jews from this society. Uh, he also perhaps subscribed to the church's age-old anti-Semitism, the belief that the Jews killed Christ, and so modern individual Jews were evil and they should suffer. This put the church on a sympathetic level with fascism and even with Nazism, in my view. Uh, plus, the worst evil for the church was communism, and Jews, in its view, had founded communism. Thus, Bishop Paolo Galeazzi responded quite eagerly to the head of the province's request to allow the fascists to set up a campo di concentramento for Jews in his summer seminary. He presided over the prisoners. He allow, and he allowed the fascists uh, to deport two busloads of Jews, about half of the total number, uh, to the camp of Fossoli in the north, which in 1944 was a way station to Auschwitz. He actually rented the camp to the fascists, and thus he was not forced, although... Um, if it had been, if he had been requested and not wanted to accept it, he could have asked his superiors in the Vatican perhaps to intercede. Uh, but instead, he accepted the idea of a lease, which was quite a lot of money in those days. And he signed a lease with the governor of the province. 
um, a few church facilities elsewhere in Italy had been used for similar purposes, but they had always been requisite, requisitioned. This was the only instance of a rental. After the war, the bishop had what I would call the chutzpah to write to the new government of Italy, post-fascist, and tell them that he had not actually been paid the rent and could they please reimburse him for the rent, which of course they did not do. But he didn't seem to understand the lack of continuity between a fascist government and a democratic post-fascist government. Uh, so um, one problem is that after the war, uh, two or three local Jews who had been freed very early from the camp after a month or so spoke well of the bishop and said he was very kind to them. Of course he was, he released them. And uh, somehow he acquired the reputation of having saved Jews rather than have been, uh, been a collaborator in deporting the Jews. Who was Temistocle Sadun? Can you elaborate? Oh, Temistocle, you pronounced that beautifully. Temistocle Sadun was a... Um, Jew from Pitigliano, who had been a very civic-minded citizen uh, at the beginning of the century. He, had, um, he was an engineer, and he had personally uh, designed and financed uh, the uh, bringing of electricity to Pitigliano, which I'm sure involves uh, a great deal of knowledge as well as funds. And he'd done other little local engineering projects to benefit the town at his own expense. Um, just before the war, he had designed a new office for the mayor of Pitigliano. And, but by the time it was opened, the uh, racial laws were in effect and and he was not to be given the credit. They had a special ceremony. He stood on the side and listened. Other people took the credit and his name was not even mentioned. He was very, very upset about this, obviously, and this tremendous insult to his professional and abilities and his civic mindedness. And soon after that, he moved to Rome and never returned to Pitigliano. So this was a, an instance of the good relations, the reputation for good relations between Christians and Jews in Pitigliano being deliberately undermined. Who was René Babonneau? Can you elaborate? Um, yes. Um, he was a... French um, friend of de Gaulle, apparently, a close, uh, close associate of de Gaulle. And he was one of the people who were not Jewish, who ended up in the camp. Uh, we don't know where he was arrested or how, but he was with a group of other um, uh, resistors 
to Nazism and fascism. The others were probably Algerian Muslims because Algerian Muslims did also fight with de Gaulle. And somehow this group ended up in the camp. Um, towards the last days of the camp, I believe it would be perhaps in May 1944, Rene Bobineau led an escape. They had decided it was time that they joined the resistance in the forests around, and um, they tried to escape over the fence. He was wounded. He was shot. The others escaped without any injuries. He was shot and he was um, sent to a, a local hospital to recover. So unfortunately, if he had dreams of, of um, heroism and so on, he didn't manage to achieve them. He was recuperating in hospital at the, by, at the end of the war. Who was Alceo Ercolani? Can you tell us about him? Yes, Alceo Ercolani was the fascist governor of our province, the province of Grosseto. Um, he himself uh, was a rather fanatical, um, sort of a careerist, you might say. Some He wanted to make money uh, because his family had a bankruptcy. So he was trying very hard to get promotions. Um, he was not um, at all uh, empathetic to the fate of the Jews or any other victims. He was simply pursuing his own uh, rather fanatical career path. He was responsible for ordering um, at least one massacre of in the province. It took place in a small town called Istia. Uh, he didn't commit it himself, but um, one of his colonels uh, was ordered to um, arrest draft evaders. After September 1943, after the armistice, when um, Italy split, um, the fascist government retained the northern part, the southern part, the king and his cabinet fled to southern Italy, where the invading allies were already there and uh, was sheltered by the allies. Um, so um, after that, um, the Italian army sort of dissolved. It was in chaos. People didn't know what to do. Should they report to the fascists? Should they, should they go home? What should they do? Should they start fighting the Nazis who were streaming into northern Italy? And many people uh, simply deserted and went into hiding. So there was a group of young men in this place called Istia. And um, Ercolani wanted to get to them. So he sent his uh, colonel, arrested, he sent 60 soldiers, uh, fascist soldiers, to arrest 
a dozen draft evaders who were unarmed. They uh, gave them a summary trial and then they were executed. And uh, Erkulani was, uh, was responsible for that. He actually praised, he himself was praised by the Nazis and he praised his colonel as well. So the news of this event was all over the province, probably um, uh, made people who were allied with the fascists rather scared, uh, and not to mention the ones who were against the fascists. And um, that was the way he would govern. Another incident, he, um, he would receive tip-offs, but they were anonymous. Uh, for where um, uh, where opponents of fascism or Jews were hiding. Uh, and he got many anonymous uh, tips. He said he the people who wanted to be anonymous were cowards. He would ignore them. He would tear up their letters and throw them in the wastebasket and disinfect his hands was his phrase. So he was quite fanatical. Um, extreme. He ended up in the north um, with Mussolini's government when he had to flee uh, together with his local local um, government. And um, he was put in charge of refugee operations in Milan for a while. After the war, he was tried for some of these atrocities and for collaboration and for stealing state funds. Uh, but he only served five years because Italy had very generous policies of pardoning the former fascists after the war. Can you tell us about Egon Mosbach? Why is he noteworthy? Okay, Egon Mosbach, He's a character who appealed to me. Um, he was a single man, as far as we know, uh, a German from a town called Isahon. And he was in Italy, obviously trying to escape the Nazis. Uh, originally, he was on the East Coast. We don't know if he was perhaps trying to get to Palestine or uh, perhaps anywhere he could get to. By that time, after 1939, foreign Jews were anxious to go anywhere, especially countries in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, so Egon was caught by the fascists and uh, arrested, sent into house arrest in an, a, a little village not far from Rokate di Rigi. What did he do there? Like He couldn't work. He had a very small allowance for food and rent. He was a painter, actually, obviously a hobby of his. And he painted um, a number of um, oils, I think, that he gave to local shopkeepers in exchange for food, um, perhaps for his rent, because he simply didn't have any money. Anyway, um, in um, November... 1943, he was arrested with many other foreign Jews in the area and imprisoned in the concentration camp. We don't know whether he was able to paint in the camp, but 
he was there over about nine months. At the end of that, he was deported on the first bus to leave Pitigliano in to Fossoli, the big camp, which was in the north near Parma. Um, he somehow managed to stay in the camp uh, for a while. Perhaps he hid and was not uh, taken to one of the trains, but uh, he was actually finally put on the last train to Auschwitz that left from Fossoli. And he died in either in Auschwitz or in one of the satellite camps that were used for uh, slave laborers. So that is the story. Um, I and um, an elderly scholar from Petigliano were trying to trace his relatives. Uh, he has relatives in the United States. We tried to trace them through the um, Holocaust Museum, which has a service for tracing. It's called the Tracing Service. And, but uh, we never got any response. They may not even have known that he existed because they were not close relatives. That is the story of Egon Mosbach. Can you tell us about the geography and demography of Grosseto? I'll tell you about the province as a whole so you understand the contrasts. Sure. Vitigliano was in the hilly area inland. Grosseto, the, the provincial capital, was on the coastal plain close to the sea. This area, uh, since Roman times, had been a very marshy, wild area with bandits and wild horses and, and so forth, and a lot of malaria. And the population was quite sparse. Um, we find uh, that um, it was a very good place for the resistance to hide and conduct its operations. And also uh, Jews who went into the forest uh, were able to hide and um, uh, not be detected by the Nazis who didn't know the area at all. Um, historically, this area was, um, uh, it, it let me think, what is the word? The area of the Etruscans, it was Etresca, perhaps, in Roman times. The Romans, of course, defeated the Etruscans, uh, but they did have an interesting civilization. There are many, many remains, archaeological remains with, with um, murals and mosaics and so on, so that we know something about their way of life. Um, but after that period, it was a rather wild and uninhabited border area between the area of Rome, uh, Latium in Roman times, Lazio today, and the very south of Tuscany. Tuscany had not always been ruled by uh, Florence, by the Medici in Florence. Before, there were a lot of little local warlords who were fighting each other and so on. And it was a slightly chaotic place that was a good place for Jews to hide. Both in late medieval times and in the time of the Second World War. Okay. Who were 
Jofredo and Ariel Paggi. Can you elaborate upon them? Ariel Paggi um, was a very good friend. He passed away, I think, about a year ago. I'm not exactly sure. But he was a very good friend, and he was most helpful to me in this book. He himself published two books that were published in Italian. One was his autobiography. It was called um, A Child in the Tempest, Un Bambino nella Tempesta, about his childhood experiences during the war. And um, he himself had been doing research interviews with the rescuers, the people who saved the Jews and hid them, and with the Jews themselves too, with a view to writing a book. He did publish a second book, which consisted of his interviews, but before that he shared them with me and I drew on them extensively for my own book. Um, so Ariel was very helpful. He was also the descendant, I think his great uncle, uh, who had been born in Pitigliano. His name was Gianetto Pe Paggi. He went to uh, the rabbinical college in Livorno and um, studied to become a teacher. Then he went, um, before Libya had been colonized, he went to Libya and he founded a chain of Italian language schools for Italians and also many Libyan Jews attended as well. And he was very well regarded by the Italian government. He received a state funeral. So this was Ariel's great uncle, I believe, or great, great uncle. Um, Ariel himself uh, went into hiding with his family. He was a six or seven year old child. They hid with farmers. Uh, he writes about this in his book, about how he was almost detected uh, by fascists, uh, but um, managed to escape. He was, um, he was um, very homesick, not, not homesick, but missing his parents and his mother. And, um, but he received wonderful care from the farmer farming families in the countryside. And he was very grateful to them. After the war, he uh, brought their stories to the attention of people in Yad Vashem. And some of them were uh, designated righteous Gentiles in a ceremony or two ceremonies, I think, held in Pitigliano. Uh, with the Italian, uh, with the um, Israeli ambassador in attendance and somebody from Yad Vashem, I suppose. Anyway, he, he has done a great deal to bring the knowledge of, of uh, what happened in this prov province to the public. Um, his Go Gofredo Paci was his uncle, his father's brother, I think. Um, when the racial laws came into effect in 1938, Jews lost their jobs. He was a some sort of a scientist working in a laboratory in Florence, quite well educated. He took refuge in Pitigliano, but he couldn't work. And he obviously was very bored. He actually went back to his job in Florence. 
um, there he was uh, he was uh, denounced to the fascists. Here is a Jew working in this laboratory, and he's not supposed to be. He was arrested. He was sent to Fossily, and from there went on to Auschwitz and perished there. After the war, Ariel's uh, uncle, I think, um, no, he was an uncle. Anyway, maybe the father, Ariel's father, tried to get the person who denounced him in the laboratory because it was well known who had uh, given him up, um, tried to get him prosecuted. In the meantime, this person had become from a fascist, he became a communist. That was a fairly common move for fascists after the war. It kind of helped to obliterate their previous record. And because he, Ariel wrote that because he was a communist, he couldn't be prosecuted. So uh, those are the stories of Ariel and Goffredo. What new information does your book provide regarding the Italian occupation of Libya? How does your book help us contextualize better what befell Libyan Jews under Italian rule? Okay. Um, I Well, obviously my book is not totally on that subject, but it's something mm -hmm. that interests me. I have another book, oh, um, which is a translation, and, and another yet another book, which is an anthology of articles about the Jews of Libya. So in Libya, uh, I believe you sent me a quote that uh, I might I might read. In Libya, we have a whole spectrum of different kinds of Jews. We have very Italianized Jews, who, like many many Italian Jews, were members of the fascist party. It was something that middle class people did at one time. And so the Jews did as well. Uh, where is the quote? One second. Oh, well, I don't see it. Anyway, um, your quote related to a an architect called Umberto Di Segni. Umberto Di Segni was an maybe Italian origin or maybe simply Italianized uh, Libyan Jew who uh, was the favorite architect of Italo Balbo, the governor of Libya, and designed many official buildings. Um, uh, there was a, a meeting of the fascist party in, in Tripoli and um, Italo Balbo asked Umberto Di Segni uh, to raise his hand. He was making the point that many Jews were at that time loyal to the fascist party. So he said, Umberto, raise your hand. He raised it. Now raise the other hand. Sir, I cannot. He had lost his arm in the First World War, defending Italy against her enemies. So this was an example of a good Jew. Um, I think Ital Italo Balbo once said something like, some of my best friends are Jews. And um, he had the support of the government. 
After the racial laws, um, Balbo could not give him contracts to design buildings anymore, but he was still quite supportive. So that was one end of the spectrum, very Italianized, very loyal to Italy, even fascist party members um, who uh, would collaborate with Italy uh, as far as they possibly could bring themselves to within the confines of their Jewish identity. At the other end, we have a large number of very traditional Jews in Libya who, um, who objected to many of the requirements of the fascist government. For example, the fascist government asked them to open their shops on uh, Shabbat, on the Sabbath, uh, because most tourists would come on Saturdays to visit Tripoli, Italian tourists. They refused. So uh, they were flogged. This is where Italo Balbo distinguished between different kinds of Jews. There were the good Jews and the bad ones. He had some of the bad ones flogged. And um, Balbo himself was killed in a plane crash rather early in his career, but Things went from, from bad to worse, um, even though the racial laws were not fully implemented in Libya, the Italian racial laws. Um, by the time the Allies were invading Libya from the east, coming from Egypt, um, Jews were very suspect to the Italians. And in fact, some of the Jews in Benghazi, where the Allies arrived, um, uh, helped the Allies. I don't know, they gave them directions or something like that. In punishment, Italy, when Italy regained Benghazi, they sent them to a concentration camp in the desert south of Tripoli. And um, this camp had, uh, I think, less than a thousand Jews, but several hundred, maybe 700, something like that of which um, uh, at least one third of them died of disease and um, perhaps malnutrition as well. So Italy did not um, present a very, uh, a very good record of its treatment of Jews, either in the colonies or in, its, in the home country. Who was Michele de Anna? Can you elaborate? Oh, yes, I believe I spoke about him a little bit with um, Ercolani. Michele de Anna was a fascist colonel, probably as fanatical as Ercolani himself. He was the one who uh, ordered and, and who executed and carried out the massacre of 12 uh, draft evaders and some other massacres on a similar scale in various parts of the province to, to try to impose uh, fascist uh, orders. Um, he himself, after the war, he fled to Switzerland and um, he was tried in absentia uh, there was a high court in the city of Perugia. Uh, at his trial, he wasn't there, 
Um, Bishop Galeazzi, who, as we know, was a sort of fascist sympathizer, came and most likely perjured himself. He said De Anna was innocent. Somebody else had confessed to the murder of these of these draft evaders. Um, now he had been seen there. Apparently, it was known that he was the perpetrator, but the bishop was probably perjuring himself on behalf of an old ally. The bishop, the bishop himself was slow to change. He was a man of the old, uh, older days of fascism, uh, the church under fascism. And um, he thought it was perfectly fine to perjure himself to defend this Michele de Anna, who never actually served in prison. He waited and waited, various pardons came up that he benefited from. Eventually he returned to Rome in about 1960. And uh, he was a doctor in fact, and was practicing medicine in Rome. Which Nazi concentration camps were Tuscan Jews deported to? Did any survive? Um, well, they were all taken as far as I know. Um, to Fossoli and one other one other Italian uh, transit camp called Scipione, which was in the same area. It took sort of the overflow. Um, from there, from both of these camps, Jews were sent by train to Auschwitz. Um, a very few came back um, out of about 50, I would say 10 maybe returned. Oh because it was after all late in the war, so they did have a slightly higher chance of surviving. Um, I will tell a story, if I have the time, about um, a family, uh, a young couple who were actually from Livorno, and their name was Finzi. Finzi is a common Italian name. Everybody knows the Finzi Contini name. So they were just Finzi, and um, the wife was pregnant when they were arrested, and she was due to give birth in January 1944, I think. Um, the director of the camp treated her very courteously, allowed her to go to a hospital nearby because she was um, expecting a difficult pregnancy. She had her baby there. Uh, he allowed, the director allowed the husband to go back to their home and retrieve some baby equipment that they needed. And after a few weeks, he also very courteously asked them if they would kindly go back to the uh, Roccati di Righi prison camp, which they did. So everybody loved the baby and her name was Giliola. When Giliola was about three months old, came the deportation. They were sent to Fossoli and then to Auschwitz. Uh, on arrival at Auschwitz, uh, a Nazi grabbed the baby, threw her up in the air and impaled her on his bayonet. And the mother fell down dead from the shock, uh, according to the account of a survivor who witnessed this. 
And the husband died a few weeks later in uh, one of the uh, satellite camps of Auschwitz. So that was the end of that beautiful young family. And um, the person who gave the account, her name was Frida Mossil. She knew them from Livorno, this family. She wrote an account and uh, it is to be found in this in the state archives in Grosseto. I've received a copy of that. Um, so that's the story of one survivor, a family that did not survive. Um, I guess it was rather random who survived and who didn't. After the war, um, very few, almost nobody came back to the province of Grosseto. The foreign Jews didn't want to go back. And the local Jews, um, even local Jews would come back for a while but they would try to move on to some big city, make a new start, put all of that behind them. And after the war, people didn't talk about their experiences for a long, long time. Many things got forgotten. And um, the archives only have a, you know, a fraction of, of what really happened in the archives. Who were Eugenia Edda? Carla and Marcella Servi. Can you oh. elaborate on them? What can you tell us about the Servi family? Okay, they were related, but I'm going to divide them because uh, they had very different roles. Uh, they were cousins. Uh, their fathers, Azelio and Tra Tranquilo, were brothers. Um, Tranquilo's daughters were Edda and Marcella. These two people have done a lot to publicize, to let the world know about what happened during the war in the province of Grosseto. Uh, Edda in particular wrote a little memoir called in English because she had moved to America and her memoir is called Child of the Ghetto. Um, Marcella also gave me some interviews. Uh, she was a very good personal friend to me. And the other side, I don't know them personally, e e Eugenia and Carla were the daughters of Tranquilo. Now, it uh, the issue is the record of Tranquilo, uh, how he behaved during the, the war, because he was criticized by other Jews he tried to persuade Jews to go into the camp where he said they would be safe and they would have plenty of food. He was, in a way, doing the work of the bishop, uh, recruiting them for the camp. And uh, he was released. He was arrested, but then he was released after about a month. And he was given the job of driving to get the tobacco and the salt deliveries which was rather dangerous because the roads were being bombed by the Allies at that point. Anyway, Tranquilo was criticized very strongly after the war for being a collaborator, basically, trying to help the, the uh, fascists and the bishop fill their camp with Jews. This was in hindsight. At the time, 
people didn't really realize the implications. They were, some were mistrustful, uh, like the family of Ariel Paggi, which, which refused to go to the camp. Now, as Azelio, his wife, and their youngest child went to the camp, while Marcella, Edda, and the two older brothers took to the forest and lived in the forest for a year, practically. And uh, at, they went from farmhouse to farmhouse, asking for a place to sleep, asking for some food. Uh, it must have been terribly difficult. Marcella was the youngest. I think she was about 13 years old. It was very, very difficult for her, that way of life. In the end, they joined up with the resistance and uh, especially the two older brothers were active resistance fighters. The girls did things like cooking, and um, so they adopted a new way of life at that point. The others, uh, Eugenia and Carla, um, were also in the camp with their father. They stayed a little while longer, but eventually they were released as well after maybe a month and a half. And uh, they were sort of under the protection of the fascists, this family, and uh, always spoke well of the bishop and uh, were maybe the primary people who were responsible after the war for saying that he saved Jews. Well, the fact is he saved them, but at the same time, he collaborated in sending other Jews to their deaths. So it's a complicated situation. Uh, responsibility and blame uh, are um, hard to assign, but sometimes some things are rather obvious. How does your book contribute to our understanding of collective memory? Okay. Um, collective memory uh, has somewhat whitewashed the uh, reputation of the bishop, and collective memory has um, raised the reputation of the resistance. Um, of course, there were very courageous people in the resistance, um, the general collective memory today is like that. They resist the the um, the partisans were the heroes, and um, Jews were victims. Um, and of course, there is the uh, the story of the brave Italians, uh, the good Italians, Italiani brava gente. Uh, which also tends to absolve people if we ignore their fascist past. Um, so collective memory is um, a little vague, a little distorted over the years. Memories got changed right after the war. Some things that would be embarrassing were buried, forgotten. Amnesia was very important. Um, especially regarding the Rakate de Regi camp. Um, individually, we have conflicting memories of the same events, how things happened. For example, where did the buses come from that were used to deport the Jews? 
uh, they were they um, most likely came from the bus company based in Pitigliano. But the owners of the bus company maintained that they were helping the resistance somehow. They maintained that the buses were disabled and so couldn't possibly have been their buses to you that were used to deport the Jews. That's just one issue among very many where people disagree even today. Uh, these things, these stories have been published fairly recently. And even today there is no clarity. So um, collective memory, maybe misleading, individual memories are conflictive, divided memory. We call it divided memory. Um, even today, it's very hard to establish. I tried to go to the documents and um, the eyewitnesses um, as far as I could, as far as they, they survived documents or eyewitnesses, but still hard to establish facts or memory. Were there any non-Italian Jews in Tuscany? If yes, who were they and what happened to them? Okay, I think I mentioned that um, in, it's probably about half of the Jews in the camp of Roccate de Righi were foreign Jews. They had been under house arrest because they had been caught in Italy with no way to escape. And um, their visas ran out. They were in Italy on visitors' visas. They could not travel, even if they had visas to go to a place like Uruguay or the United States, they couldn't travel because shipping stopped. So they were just stuck. They ran out of money. They were arrested. Um, uh, by the fascists, and they were put under house arrest in remote villages, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> remote villages in various parts of Italy, um, many around the area of uh, Grosseto. And um, actually, they didn't have a bad time. They had good relations with the villagers. I think I told the story of Egon Mosbach, who didn't have any money, but he managed to pay for his food and rent with his own paintings. And others uh, entertained the villagers, I would say. They admired these sophisticated people who spoke several languages and had experience in other countries. They were mainly Polish and German Jews, some French, um, a Yugoslavian family, and uh, they got on well with their hosts. They had good relations. They respected each other. Uh, that was before they were put in the camp where they were common prisoners with um, nothing to do. And, and um, I guess, how did they spend their time in the camp? They talked to each other uh, a lot. Eugenia had a friend, Eugenia Servi, who I mentioned, had a, a friend a few years younger than her, and uh, she admired how many languages she spoke. And um, behind all of this, behind the friendliness and the conversation and so forth in the camp, there must have been deep anxiety both from the Italian Jews and the foreign Jews, 
about what would happen to them. And uh, it was it was warranted. Um, unfortunately, the little friend of Eugenia was deported um, probably to Auschwitz, although there was a faint chance that she escaped along the way, but most likely not. Um, so those are the foreign Jews. They managed as well as they could in a foreign country, uh, not all of them speaking Italian, nowhere to go, no money. It was very, very difficult for them. Why, according to your title, was Southern Tuscany an ambiguous refuge? Oh, well, because first of all, in those days, people were very reticent. They didn't discuss problems the way people do today. That was the culture of those days. Uh, but more particularly, in practice, um, the, uh, the refuge was divided. Um, in Pitigliano, the farmers, around Pitigliano, to be precise, the farmers wholeheartedly supported and protected the Jews they had taken under their wing. Uh, really commendable, really incredible, their bravery. Um, on the other side of the province, they were offered what was basically a false um, refuge, the camp. Um, for people, people in the know would know by that time, late 1944, that Jews in camps were very easy to arrest and deport. And anyone anyone in a camp should have been very nervous about what the fascists were going to do with good reason. So the ambiguity there was more of a deceit. Uh, the the um, Tranquilo said, come to the camp, you'll be safe there, there's plenty of food and they will protect us because it's under the protection of a bishop. In fact, and I'm sure the bishop let that be known. Um, in fact, the bishop did nothing to protect the Jews who were about to be deported. He just let it happen. And then after the war, he, he did not deny that he had supposedly saved some Jews as well. So, um, there were lies. There were there were there was deceit, and uh, ambiguous is a rather nice word for the situation. I think. What role did the delegation for the assistance of Jewish immigrants, Della Sem, play in the Holocaust in Italy? Um, Della Sem was an organization of um, initially founded by Jews to. Um, help the uh, migrants, the refugees who were coming in from other countries like Germany and Poland and so on. Um, but later it changed its its uh, goals. Um, Delisem was composed of Jews, of church people who were anti-fascist and uh, for probably 
humanitarian reasons, wanted to help Jews escape from the fascists. And, um, uh, well, church people and, and some uh, lay people who were also anti-fascist. So three groups who combined to found this organization. I think it was primarily in Genova in the beginning, and it received funds from the Joint Distribution Committee in New York. Uh, it also received donations uh, within Italy from Italians who wanted to help it. Um, about 40% from Italy, 60% from uh, the Joint Distribution Committee. What did it do with these funds? Um, it helped some people escape across the border into Switzerland, uh, some Jews, for which bribes were necessary. Um, it also provided small allowances to those in hiding, those not in hiding, and it provided food packages to Jews in difficult circumstances. Um, when the Jewish members were forced to go into hiding themselves because it was too dangerous, the church people took over and they would send packages, gifts of food uh, to other areas where they knew there were Jews. Uh, Delasem didn't do any of its actions in Pitigliano, it simply wasn't able to reach there. But I suspect some Delasem donations reached uh, Bishop Galeazzi, who did not sympathize with them at all, but was probably willing to accept some small gifts for the Jews who were in the camp because we hear that occasionally he would set, he would give out small gifts to the in the camp uh, didn't really make a whole lot of difference but uh, delasem in other areas not in not in this province was very very effective and probably the only organization helping jews in hiding or somehow in difficult conditions in Italy. What kinds of memoirs and diaries exist from Tuscan Jews during the years of the Holocaust? Yes, there is one very important, I will talk about my province because I'm not totally familiar with the whole of Tuscany. Um, there is one diary uh, written by Azelio Servi, the father of Ma uh, Marcella and Edda, um, he, I mentioned before, he and his wife and their youngest child went to the camp. Um, he, as the assistant rabbi, there was no actual rabbi for many, many decades already. He was fully responsible for the Jews, Jewish community of Pitigliano. So he wanted to give moral support, I believe. Uh, he went into the camp. Um, he has a diary of four pages only, which were the inside pages of his uh, prayer book. So he didn't have much space. Um, he said, this prayer book will be my only companion uh, during these long months. He wrote that at the beginning. 
Um, I was a little surprised that he wrote that that was his only companion because I thought he was there to give moral support and therefore be companionable. Um, I thought that um, Azaleel might have approached the bishop to improve the conditions or, or perhaps have some people released from the camp. I don't know whether he did and he was rebuffed. Perhaps he did but we don't have any record of that. Anyway, he did make some very valuable lists. When the first bus full of Jews left for uh, the camp in the north, he made a list of the names. So we have that, uh, almost all the names. Some, a few people he didn't really know, he would write something like Polish couple, uh, because he didn't know them. He hadn't been able to communicate with them. Uh, and then uh, when the second bus left, he also made a list of the names of the people on the second bus. This is a very important document. He also made a, a little um, few notes about the liberation of the camp. It wasn't really liberated. It was abandoned. The bishop left with his retinue, the fascists laid down their arms and fled as the allies were getting closer and some resistance fighters came in, but it wasn't a battle exactly. It wasn't a liberation. It was simply an abandonment and change of hands. So uh, he wrote about those things. He also, what he had not been able to write in his journal, he told his daughter, Edda, and she put this in her memoir. Hopefully her memory was correct of what her father had written in 1944. She wrote a memoir, which was published in, I think, about 1996, called Child of the Ghetto. She wrote it in English, and she had already lived for many years in the United States. Um, she had been, during those decades, she had been exposed to knowledge of the Holocaust, which she didn't have uh, at the time of the events. So uh, then I am not sure if this colored her account or not. It might have. Um, another memoir is that by Ariel Paggi. Um, he also has a child in his title. It's Un Bambino Nella Tempesta, A Child in the Tempest. This is also a little book talking about his experiences as a six, seven-year-old child in hiding with the farmers and uh, so forth and about a little about his own efforts after the war, how his family related to the farmers uh, who had protected them after the war. He says that when his family left uh, Pitigliano, first for Grosseto and then later for Livorno, his parents kind of cut off ties with people in Pitigliano. For many years, they were not in touch with the farmers who had saved them. And as a much older person, he was sorry about that and wanted to compensate them. And that's why he made a special effort to get in touch with Yad Vashem. 
together with another important person in this whole story, whose name is Elena Servi. Uh, Elena hasn't written a memoir, um, but she did. She did uh, give a long, um, a long interview, which is a film, um, and she is currently the head of the um, uh, Christian Jewish organization in Pitiliano. She's one of the few Jews who still live in Pitiliano. Okay, now the third memoir that I was going to mention is by Carla uh, Servi, the daughter of Tranquilo and the sister of Eugenia. Eugenia and Carla have consistently praised the bishop and have good memories of the camp, even though they were not there for very long, maybe a month and a half, something like that. And her, Carla's book is called Una Infancia Perduta, A Lost Childhood, because uh, even though they were well treated in the camp, they also suffered later on in hiding and perhaps from a certain uh, alienation from the rest of the Jewish community after the war. So those are three, uh, one diary, two memoirs that uh, I can think of about these specific events, giving, of course, uh, slightly conflicting views in some cases. How does your book enable us to recontextualize the life, legacy, and biography of Primo Levi? Okay. Um, I thought, I think... In two aspects, Primo Levi was um, in the camp of Fossoli. He had been arrested uh, from Torino, and he was there in the camp of Fossoli towards the end. Um, at a certain point, the Nazis felt the Italians were not doing the job fast enough, and they took over from March 1944. But... Primo Levi was there before that and after that, until he was finally deported. He said that all along the way, Italians were working together with the Nazis, Italian fascists. He saw them bringing the Jews on buses or some other way to the camp. He saw them helping to load the trains. He saw them running the camp. And uh, he wanted to emphasize this because uh, he wanted to show that Italians were collaborating with the Nazis. Uh, the other aspect of Primo Levi's work uh, is his, his um, concept of um, the gray zone, a moral gray zone that he experienced in Auschwitz people who are hungry, people who are worked to the point of exhaustion, subject to violence, lose their moral compass to some extent. They become dehumanized. He wrote, this, he wrote a book with the title, If This Is a Man, were, were these people still men if they lost their moral compass? And the, they had to come back to life again 
after the war, they had to become human again because they had been so demoralized and dehumanized. I think that some of Primo Levi's gray zone moral ambiguity, uh, to put it nicely, filtered back to Fossoli, even to Roccate de Righi. It was all one system. And morality was battered all along the way. And uh, that might be why we have behavior such as Tranquilo, Servis, who collaborated, obviously, and others who were morally ambiguous, even back in the province. That's my theory. In your opinion, what does the future hold for Holocaust memory in Italy in general and in Tuscany in particular? Yes, Italy has made great strides in a number of scholars' works in particular in challenging the myth of the good Italian in um, urging Italians to, of course, we're talking now two generations later, but urging Italians to admit some responsibility for what happened to their own Jews or to the Jews who were who had taken refuge in Italy. And um, I think that this is, uh, this is um, a very important process that is also rather delicate and precarious. Um, recently, uh, there were two books published after mine. I know you're, you're presenting my book as a new book, but others have come out since then that are relevant to the subject. Um, David Kurtzer, about a year ago, published a book called The Pope at War, um, in which he was probably the first scholar to have access to um, the new phase of um, uh, documentation made available covering the war years at the Vatican archives. He went, uh, this was in the time of uh, our pandemic and uh, it must have been very difficult for him to do this, but he managed to get access and uh, then published this book, The Pope at War, which examines the record of um, Pope Pius XII, the Pope, the Pope at the time of the war, and um, does assign some responsibility to him. Um, he, his silence, his lack of action um, are very telling. And um, one major incident that uh, David Kurtzer discusses at length is the deportation of the Jews of Rome. A thousand or more Jews were deported. There's a book called Under His Very Windows, The Pope's Windows, by Susan Zucotti, published a number of years ago. David Kurtzer's um, findings in his new book only confirm that the Pope didn't come up to his moral responsibilities, didn't come up to his image as the head of, of uh, the church at that time. And uh, in the province, there were people like Bishop Galeazzi, 
who probably modeled themselves on the Pope, followed his example and uh, did not do anything to protect the local Jews. So that's one aspect. Um, urging Italians to um, admit responsibility, historically, of course. Um, another, another book, which for me is rather worrying, is a new novel published um, at the beginning of this year by a popular novelist, popular and successful novelist called Saka Nastrini. Now, he happens to live in the province. I believe he even lives in the village of Roccate de Righi. And he's written a novel about it that just came out. Um, it's called Villa del Seminario, the villa of the seminary, which was the name that, that the seminary was given. And um, it has it's a novel. So it's fiction. And he creates fictional characters, there is a romantic um, thread that runs through it. Um, in my view, this is fine. That's what novel. That's what novelists do. Uh, but uh, he is not true to the historical record when he puts Nazis running the seminary. There were no Nazis running the seminary, and. Uh, it's a distortion. It exempts Italians from, from what they did. It exempts them from their own responsibility by assigning the bad stuff to the Nazis. In the novel, they're, they're, the bishop is in league. He's, all, he's a character in the novel. Uh, we see him in league with the um with the resistance, sending messages to the resistance, that sort of thing. And um, I, I think this is not a good move. I think it takes us several steps backwards in the process of historical reassessment. Um, Can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this book? Can you tell us about your current research? Where has your attention gone since this book has been behind you? Oh, <laughs> do we know where our time goes? Um, I, I published another book after this. Um, it came out a year ago, and it is a development of a project that I started several decades ago on Sephardic literature um, I was writing a book on Sephardic literature in many languages, but I decided if I have, to, if I'm going to finish this book and publish it in my lifetime, I need to limit it. So I limited it to novels in French by uh, fairly well-known Sephardic novelists. I discuss Albert Memi. I discuss um, Patrick Modiani, who won the Nobel Prize in France. And um, so a lot of time went on that. The other thing that I do, and I continue right now, is a, the journal. My journal comes out three times a year, Sephardic Horizons. And um, we have about about four articles on various aspects of Sephardic schol uh, scholarship, um, mainly by scholars, 
we have um, a feature on Ladino in every issue, and we have a, a large number of book reviews because so many books are being published in Sephardic studies right now. And I enjoy that a lot. I also do interviews um, for the journal. Um, I'm looking for a new book project. Um, since I live in Jerusalem, I'm thinking of doing something on Sephardic families of Jerusalem, but um, I'm only just beginning that subject. That would be wonderful. I think that would be a significant contribution. And I can't wait for you to make headway on it and bring that project into fruition. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's very encouraging. I appreciate that. To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Judith Rumani. She is the founder and editor of the Sephardic Horizons online journal. She is also the founder and director of the Jewish Institute of Petiliano. She is a retired professor in the Spanish department and in Jewish studies at the University of Maryland, where she taught Sephardic literature and, Sephard and Spanish language. Today, we have been discussing her new book, Jews in Southern Tuscany During the Holocaust Ambiguous Refuge, published in Lanham, Maryland, by Roman and Littlefield, 2021. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ari. I really appreciate this. It was my honor and my privilege. Thank you.